Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're beginning a new book, it's called The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester and this is the first part of the reading. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can not only support this podcast but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 1. The Romantic Challenge I love life. This great, exciting, absorbing, intriguing, puzzling, adventurous life. But I am 69, and in September 1971, before this book is published, I shall be 70, and my lifespan is shortening. So for the past few years I have pondered time after time how I can use the remainder of this great gift of life to the full. The Buddha said that life was a gift which any man can take, but none can give. I think it is wrong not to use such a gift to the utmost, wrong to bury it like an unused talent, wrong not to use it to the very end. It was in 1959, after what seems a miraculous recovery from lung cancer, a recovery due chiefly to my wife Sheila's brave and forceful action, that my passion for life intensified and I became vividly aware of its precious quality. It was this that triggered off my taking part in the first single-handed transatlantic sailing race from Plymouth to New York in 1960, and within 32 months of being first taken ill, I crossed the starting line for what was then the toughest yacht race ever devised, and was able to finish in 40 and a half days. It was a great adventure. That first solo race and the prospect of racing alone across the Atlantic when I had never before been alone in any boat larger than a 12-foot dinghy was formidable. Five of us, five yachts, took part. Critics decried the race as too dangerous and an unnecessary risk of our lives. Before the race they said that my Gypsy Moth 3 at 40 foot was too big for one man to handle. After the race they said that Gypsy Moth had won only because she was the biggest boat of the five. Today, 11 years later, it is already difficult to understand what a daring, exciting event that first single-handed transatlantic race seemed at the time. Before the race, I said to myself that nothing could better it as an adventure, that I would be content to play it as my last card. And for a few months, I was content to think of it as that. But a year later, I found myself craving more excitement, and I set out on a solo race against time to see if Gypsy Moth and I could make the passage from Plymouth to New York in 30 days. We failed to reach my self-appointed target by 3 days and 15 hours, but on reaching Staten Island in New York Harbour, I recorded that the last thousand miles along the eastern seaboard of the United States may have been the most wonderful sail I shall ever have. These two passages were joyous adventures, after each of them, Sheila sailed back across the Atlantic in Gypsy Moth with me, and after the second, our son Giles, who was then 16, came too. It was after the 1962 venture that I got the urge to try sailing round the world alone. In 1931, I had failed in an attempt to fly round alone, and this had been niggling away in the back of my mind. Perhaps now I could achieve a solo circumnavigation sailing. The idea developed at about the time of the 1964 single-handed transatlantic race, and I became more ambitious. 
Could I, at the same time, pull off the first true circumnavigation by a single-handed yacht round the three great capes, Good Hope, Lewin and the Horn? By true circumnavigation, I mean one which passed through two points on the Earth's surface diametrically opposite each other. It was a most formidable project in itself. And then I developed another ambition. I would race against time. In this case, the average clipper time for the passage from England to Australia and home again, which I calculated from the records as 100 days out and then 110 days back. The voyage in Gypsy Moth 4 turned out to be another happy adventure, even though I failed in my race against the clippers. In fact, I passed Melbourne 99 days out from Plymouth, so I would have made the passage in 100 days if I had landed there instead of going on to Sydney but I had my heart set on sailing into Sydney Harbour because most of my flying voyages had started or finished there, and that cost me another seven days. Romantic notions have always proved expensive in one way or another. However, in compensation, I achieved a bonus in that this was the fastest true circumnavigation which has ever been made by a small craft, either with or without a crew. My life had hardly settled down again before the same old restlessness was nagging at me, and time, time, time was running on. How could I find one more satisfying venture? It would be difficult now to find a solo race or voyage with the thrilling romantic appeal of the first 1960 transatlantic solo race or the 66-67 circumnavigation. I looked back over my life to the projects or ventures which had been most satisfying, and began to ask why and how they stood out from the rest. I tried to see if there was a pattern running through them which would lead me to a new and perhaps last project. The Tasman flight in 1931 was easily the greatest adventure of my life. The Tasman Sea between New Zealand and Australia is two-thirds the width of the Atlantic, and I set out across it to Australia in a gypsy moth seaplane which weighed a thousand pounds and had a range of only 750 miles. The crossing was only possible for the little moth if I could find and land on two islands on the way. The first, Norfolk Island, was the size of a cattle station. In order to find it without any radio aids, I had to rely on sun observations with a sextant. No one then had navigated only by sextant while flying alone, and this was over the sea. I had to devise a new system of navigation for the project, a system which has now become universally accepted as the find the island method. When the sun's altitude was at a certain height, I had to turn hard right and expect to find Norfolk Island an hour's flight away in the new direction. If my navigation was wrong and I missed the island, I was lost, for I had not enough fuel to return to New Zealand, the nearest land, and no means of getting help. The appeal of the Tasman venture was its untried newness, the demand on my brain to foresee and be prepared for the unknown snags, and then the excitement of staking everything on the success of my system. That turn to the right over the lonely sea after flying in a different direction for hours was perhaps the most difficult action I have ever had to force myself to take. The attraction and the satisfaction of my solo seaplane flight from Sydney to Japan in 1931 was that it had never been done before and that I would have to reckon with a succession of unforeseeable difficulties and obstacles, coupled, of course, with the romantic appeal of flying over unexplored country and alighting the seaplane at ports and islands and lagoons where the few inhabitants had never seen an aeroplane before. The third venture, which
which stood out in my mind was the solo flight from London to Sydney in the little Gypsy Moth in 1929. This was my first serious project, and an entirely new sort of experience for me. Although the flight itself had already been made once solo by Bert Hinkler, I set out to beat his time. I failed through over-keenness and through making too big an effort which I was unable to sustain, but it was in the planning for the flight as well as in the flight itself that I first tasted the thrill of setting oneself in a race against time, a thrill which in my later years has become almost an obsession. And after these flights, the highlights among the adventures of my life came the circumnavigation and my first two solo transatlantic races. It seemed clear that there were common factors in all I had set out to do in the past. At the head of the list came the attraction of doing something that had never been done before, because of the appeal of the untried, the unknown, and the excitement as on the Tasman flight. Beyond that, the adventure had to be a challenge to my mental as well as my physical capabilities. The hard physical slog has no appeal to me unless I am using my brain in active support before and during the event. Secondly, the attraction of a race. And because I am by preference a solo flyer and a solo yachtsman, I preferred a race against time, an unrelenting opponent, to one against other competitors. Speed seemed to hold a key. The distance from A to B on the Earth's surface is unalterable, and once man has travelled A to B, the journey's done, finished with. Nobody else can ever know the excitement of being the first. All a man can do is travel faster. It would have to be under sail. Flying was out of the question, and I have always been intrigued by yacht speed, where travelling at eight knots under ten miles an hour produces a sensation of speed that a jet aircraft can never match. In addition, there is to me as much difference between racing a yacht and cruising it as between riding in the Grand National and going for an afternoon ride in the New Forest. Ambling around the world in a good, sturdy, seaworthy but slow craft is in its way appealing and interesting. I very much hope to do it myself with Sheila one day. But speed? That demands a tricky, mettlesome steed. And going faster in a yacht than anyone has done before in the same conditions has a romantic appeal all on its own. In 1967, while sailing up through the Atlantic on the passage home from Sydney, Gypsy Moth 4 made a run of 1,408 miles in eight days, 176 miles a day, which I believe was the fastest single-handed run that had then been made. I had hoped she would have been still faster, that she would have made good 200 miles a day in the roaring winds of the great southern ocean, but her hull was cranky and I could never let her rip at top speed down there. She would broach too, whipping round broadside to the waves and the wind as if daring them to lay her over on her beam, keel towards wind and waves, surfing on top of a 20-foot breaking sea, masts horizontal and pointing to the direction in which she was travelling at a speed I judged to be 30 knots. The mastheads had only to tip into the water of the trough ahead and upside down and over she must go. Only once had I been able to let her go out at full speed, and that was when making the passage home through the North Atlantic, and I felt confident that no sea big enough and rogue enough to capsize her would build up in the 30-knot trade winds, so I drove her as hard as I could for eight days and nights. She was so tender that she healed readily to 45 degrees and sometimes to 60 degrees, while I reckoned that the average heal during those eight days was 35 
This may not seem much, but tilt your chair 35 degrees sideways and you will see that it means a hellish, uncomfortable existence. I would dearly have liked to carry more sail, but when I did, Gypsy Moth 4 lay over on her beam and slowed down. So although in the wild run, 200 miles a day was my secret ambition, I had to be content with an average of 176, exactly a knot less. 200 miles a day. If I could make such a five-day run at 200 miles a day, a thousand nautical miles in all, racing all the way. I became enchanted by the neatness, the rightness of this speed, 200 miles per day. It seemed as attractive to the solo sailor as the 10-second hundred yards and the four-minute mile had been to athletes before those targets were achieved. Yet the single-handers 200 miles per day was a much more distant target than either of those had been. For some time, sprinters had been within fractions of a second of the ten, while milers had been nibbling away at fifths of a second for years. But no single-handed run had come anywhere near 200 miles a day. I believe, though I cannot be certain, that Chipsy Moth 4's 176 miles per day in 1967 was 25 miles per day faster than the previous solo fastest over a thousand miles. But... 200 miles a day was 24 miles per day, or 13.6% faster than that, which was a hell of an increase. But what a grand target to shoot at. Records reveal that big clippers put up terrific one-day runs, but fast running often meant blind running, when no astronomical fix was possible at the beginning or end of the run, and when the big ships simply ran with the weather, not caring where it took them. And I could not help wondering, as did Captain James Learmont in The Mariner's Mirror in 1957, how often a day's run claimed as a record was followed by a meander pace run on a dogleg course the next day, giving an ordinary average over the two weeks or the week. In those square rigger days, the fastest ship attracted the best cargoes and the most passengers. What I had in mind was not distance sailed or logged in one day, but a sustained run of at least a thousand miles at 200 miles a day, measured in a straight line across the Earth's surface on a great circle route. Author's note, in spite of the great clipper claims for a record single day's run, it was the comparatively small Cutty Sark which put up the fastest sustained run for clippers. Twice she made six-day runs of more than 2,160 miles, which I believe have never been beaten. Her registered length was no more than 212.5 feet, and she was of 2,100 tonnes displacement at 20-foot draft. Her sail area was 32,000 square feet. When she made those runs, she had a complement of not more than 25 hands, all told. Long-distance, single-handed sailing for distance alone has lost its pristine romantic appeal. At almost any one time now, there must be several single-handed yachts on passage across the Atlantic, east to west or west to east. And who would have thought that 12 years ago? Even a single-handed circumnavigation can never again have the same attraction now that several have done it. But to go after speed records in a single-handed offshore sailing yacht was an entirely new conception in sailing and a challenge that appealed to me enormously. The more I thought about it, the more I became convinced that this would be the next and a continuing phase in sailing, and nothing that has happened since my return has made me change my mind. One of the problems of offshore yacht racing as a sport in which non-participants can take an interest 
is that the complicated handicapping systems mean that the final result of a race may not be known for hours, even days after the first yachts home have crossed the line, and the excitement of the race has already died down. The single-handed sailor has a natural handicap that keeps him near or at the same level as his fellows. In theory, the bigger boat is always the faster boat, so the single-hander wants to go for the biggest boat he can manage, but he has to manage her in all conditions, and if he is too ambitious, she will soon exhaust him to the point where he can no longer race her and his smaller competitors will make up time against him. On the other hand, if he has a boat which is too easy to manage, she is probably too small, and a competitor with even a slightly bigger boat will probably beat him. In search of a speed record, a lot will depend on the wind and the sea, but even these will tend to even themselves out. Five days hard racing in the roaring forties might be too tough for a single-hander, while five days in the doldrums will not get him very far. I can foresee an intelligent search for point-to-point -point great circle stretches of ocean, giving distances of a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, or four thousand miles with the best sailing conditions, and these becoming familiar, named courses along which the single-handers will set out to better the existing record. So this was the broad basis of the project I started scheming and planning for. It would need hard sailing and careful, constant navigation, an ideal combination from my point of view. It was a wonderful challenge, a romantic challenge with the added attraction that I would be out to break that 200 miles a day barrier for the single-hander not once, but over a sustained period of five days. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Triamaran Spirit sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all for today from the Mariner's Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.